Part three of Dam, a Book of Calumny. This Liverbox recording is in the public domain. Dam, a Book of Calumny by H. L. Mencken. Part three. Twenty one. An American philosopher. As for William Jennings Bryant, of whom so much piffle pro and con has been written, the whole of his political philosophy may be reduced to two propositions, neither of which is true. The first is the proposition that the common people are wise and honest, and the second is the proposition that all persons who refuse to believe it are scoundrels. Take away the two, and all that would remain of Jennings would be a somewhat greasy, bald-headed man with his mouth open. 22. Clubs Men's clubs have but one intelligible purpose to afford asylum to fellows who haven't any girls. Hence their general gloom, their air of lost causes, their prevailing acrimony. No man would ever enter a club if he had an agreeable woman to talk to. This is particularly true of married men. Those of them that one finds in clubs answer to a general description. They have wives too unattractive to entertain them, and yet too watchful to allow them to seek entertainment elsewhere. The bachelors, in the main, belong to two classes. A. Those who have been unfortunate in amour, and are still too sore to show any new enterprise. And B. Those so lacking in charm that no woman will pay any attention to them. Is it any wonder that the men one thus encounters in clubs are stupid and miserable creatures? and that they find their pleasure in such banal sports as playing cards, drinking highballs, shooting pool, and reading the barbershop weeklies. The day a man's mistress is married, one always finds him at his club. 23. Fidelis ad urnum. Despite the common belief of women to the contrary, fully 95% of all the married men, at least in America, are faithful to their wives. This, however, is not due to virtue, but chiefly to lack of courage. It takes more initiative and daring to start up an extra-legal affair than most men are capable of. They look, and they make plans, but that is as far as they get. Another salient cause of connubial rectitude is lack of means. A mistress costs a great deal more than a wife. In the open market of the world she can get more. It is only the rare man who can conceal enough of his income from his wife to pay for a morganatic affair, and most of the men clever enough to do this are too clever to be intrigued. I have said that 95% of married men are faithful. I believe the real proportion is nearer 99%. What women mistake for infidelity is usually no more than vanity. Every man likes to be regarded as a devil of a fellow, and particularly by his wife. On the one hand, it diverts her attention from his more genuine shortcomings, and on the other hand, it increases her respect for him. Moreover, it gives her a chance to win the sympathy of other women, and so satisfies that craving for martyrdom which is perhaps woman's strongest characteristic. A woman who never has any chance to suspect her husband feels cheated and humiliated, 
She is in the position of those patriots who are induced to enlist for a war by pictures of cavalry charges, and then find themselves told off to wash the general's underwear. 24. A Theological Mystery The moral order of the world runs aground on hay fever. Of what use is it? Why was it invented? Cancer and hydrophobia, at least, may be defended on the ground that they kill. Killing may have some benign purpose, some esoteric significance, some comic use. But hay fever never kills, it merely tortures. No man ever died of it. Is the torture, then, an end in itself? Does it break the pride of strutting, snorting man and turn his heart to the things of the spirit? Nonsense. A man with hay fever is a natural criminal. He curses the gods and defies them to kill him. He even curses the devil. Is its use, then, to prepare him for happiness to come? For the vast ease and comfort of convalescence? Nonsense again. The one thing he is sure of the one thing he never forgets for a moment is that it will come back again next year. 25. The Test of Truth The final test of truth is ridicule. Very few religious dogmas have ever faced it and survived. Huxley laughed the devils out of the Gadarene swine. Dowie's whiskers broke the back of Dowieism. Not the laws of the United States, but the mother-in-law joke brought the Mormons to compromise and surrender. Not the horror of it, but the absurdity of it killed the doctrine of infant damnation. But the razor edge of ridicule is turned down by the tough hide of truth. How loudly the barber surgeons laughed at Harvey, and how vainly. What clown ever brought down the house like Galileo, or Columbus, or Jenner, or Lincoln, or Darwin? They are laughing at Nietzsche yet. 26. Literary Indecencies The low, graceless humor of names. On my shelf of poetry arranged by the alphabet, Coleridge and J. Gordon Kogler are next-door neighbors. Mrs. Hemans is beside Lawrence Hope. Walt Whitman rubs elbows with Ella Wheeler Wilcox. Robert Browning with Richard Burton. Rossetti with Cale Young Rice. Shelley with Clinton Scollard. Wordsworth with George E. Woodbury. John Keats with Herbert Kaufman. Ibsen on the shelf of dramatists is between Victor Hugo and Jerome K. Jerome. Suderman follows Harriet Beecher Stowe. Maeterlinck shoulders Percy Mackay. Shakespeare is between Sardot and Shaw. Euripides and Clyde Fitch. Upton Sinclair and Sophocles. Aeschylus and F. Anstey. D'Annunzio and Richard Harding Davis. Augustus Thomas and Tolstoy. More alphabetical humor. Gerhard Hauptmann and Robert Hitchens. Voltaire and Henry Van Dyke. Flaubert and John Fox, Jr., Balzac and John Kendrick Bangs, Ostrovsky and E. Phillips Oppenheim, Eleanor Glynn and Théophile Gautier, Joseph Conrad and Robert W. Chambers, 
Zola, and Zangwill. Midway, on my scant shelf of novels between George Moore and Frank Norris, there is just room enough for the two volumes of Daringforth by Frank A. Munsey. 26. Virtuous Vandalism A hearing of Schumann's B-flat symphony of late, otherwise a very caressing experience, was corrupted by the thought that music would be much the gainer if musicians could get over their superstitious reverence for the mere text of the musical classics. That reverence indeed is already subject to certain limitations. Hands have been laid at one time or another upon most of the immortal oratorios, and even the awful name of Bach has not dissuaded certain German editors but it still swathes the standard symphonies like some vast armor of rubber and angel food, and so imagination has to come to the aid of the flutes and fiddles when the band plays Schumann, Mozart, and even parts of Beethoven. One discerns often quite clearly what the reverend master was aiming at, but just as often one fails to hear it in precise tones. This is particularly true of Schumann whose deficiency in instrumental cunning has passed into proverb. And in the B-flat symphony, his first venture into the epic form, his failures are most numerous. More than once, obviously attempting to roll up tone into a moving climax, he succeeds only in muddling his colors. I remember one place, at the moment I can't recall where it is, where the strings and the brass storm at one another in furious figures. The blast of the brass, as the vaudevillians say, gets across, but the fiddles merely scream absurdly. The whole passage suggests the bleeding of sheep in the midst of a vast bellowing of bulls. Schumann overestimated the horsepower of fiddle music so far up the E-string, or underestimated the full kick of the trumpets. Other such soft spots are well known. Why, then, go on parroting gaucheries that Schumann himself, were he alive today, would have long since corrected? Why not call an ecumenical council, appoint a commission to see such things, and then forget the sacrilege? As a self-elected delegate from heathendom, I nominate Dr. Richard Strauss as chairman. When all is said and done, Strauss probably knows more about writing for orchestra than any other two men that ever lived, not excluding Wagner. Surely no living rival, as Dr. Sunday would say, has anything on him. If, after hearing a new composition by Strauss, one turns to the music, one is invariably surprised to find how simple it is. The performance reveals so many purple moments, so staggering an array of lusciousness, that the ear is bemused into detecting scales and chords that never were on land or sea. What the exploratory eye subsequently discovers, perhaps, is no more than our stout and comfortable old friend, the highly world-worn Hafsfrau, Madame Sidur with a vine leaf or two of C-sharp minor or F major in her hair. The trick lies in the tone color, in the flabbergasting magic of the orchestration. There are some moments in Electra 
when sounds come out of the orchestra that tug at the very roots of the hair, sounds so unearthly that they suggest a caroling of dragons or beer fish, and yet they are made by the same old fiddles that play the Kaiser Quartet, and by the same old trombones that the Valkyrie ride like witches' broomsticks, and by the same old flutes that sob and snuffle in Tittle's serenade, and in parts of Fjordsnot, but Roget must be rewritten by Strauss before Fjordshot is described. There is one place where the harps, taking a running start from the scrolls of the violins, leap slam-bang through, or is it into, the firmament of heaven. Once, when I heard this passage played at a concert, a woman sitting beside me rolled over like a log and had to be hauled out by the ushers. Yes, Strauss is the man to reorchestrate the symphonies of Schumann, particularly the B-flat, the Rhenish, and the Fourth. I doubt that he could do much with Schubert, for Schubert, though he is dead nearly a hundred years, yet remains curiously modern. The unfinished symphony is full of exquisite color effects. Consider, for example, the rustling figure for the strings in the first movement. And as for the C major, it is so stupendous a debauch of melodic and harmonic beauty that one scarcely notices the colors at all. In its slow movement, mere loveliness in music probably says all that will ever be said. But what of old Ludwig? Har har. Here we begin pulling the whiskers of Ball himself. Nevertheless, I am vandal enough to wonder, on sad Sunday mornings, what Strauss could do with the first movement of the C minor. More, if Strauss ever does it and lets me hear the result just once, I'll be glad to serve six months in jail with him, but in Munich, of course, and with a daily visitor's pass for Cousin Shore. The conservatism which shrinks at such barbarities is the same conservatism which demands that the very typographical errors in the Bible be swallowed without salt, and that has thus made a puerile dream-book of parts of Holy Writ. If you want to see how far this last madness has led Christendom astray, take a look at an article by Abraham Mitri Ribbony, an intelligent Syrian, in the Atlantic Monthly of a couple of years ago. The title of the article is the oriental manner of speech, and in it Ribbony shows how much of mere oriental extravagance of metaphor is to be found in many celebrated passages, and how little of literal significance. This oriental extravagance, of course, makes for beauty, but as interpreted by pundits of no imagination, it surely doesn't make for understanding. What the Western world needs is a Bible in which the idioms of the Aramaic of thousands of years ago are translated into the idioms of today. The man who undertook such a translation, to be sure, would be uproariously denounced, just as Luther and Wycliffe were denounced. But he could well afford to face the storm. The various revised versions, including the modern speech New Testament of Richard Francis Weymouth, leave much to be desired. 
They rectify many knife blunders, and so make the whole narrative more intelligible, but they still render most of the tropes of the original literally. These tropes are not the substance of Holy Writ. They are simply its color. In the same way, mere tone color is not the substance of a musical composition. Beethoven's Eighth Symphony is just as great a work in all its essentials in a forehand piano arrangement as in the original score. Every harmonic and melodic idea of the composer is there. One can trace just as clearly the subtle processes of his mind. Every step in the working out of the materials is just as plain. True enough, there are orchestral compositions of which this cannot be reasonably said. Their color is so much more important than their form that when one takes away the former, the latter almost ceases to exist. But I doubt that many competent critics would argue that they belong to the first rank. Form, after all, is the important thing. It is design that counts, not decoration. Design and organization. The pillars of a musical masterpiece are like the pillars of the Parthenon. They are almost as beautiful bleached white as they were in all their original hues. 28. A footnote on the duel of sex. If I were a woman, I should want to be a blonde with golden silky hair, pink cheeks, and sky-blue eyes. It would not bother me to think that this color scheme was mistaken by the world for a flaunting badge of stupidity. I would have a better arm in my arsenal than mere intelligence. I would get a husband by easy surrender while the brunettes attempted it vainly by frontal assault. Men are not easily taken by frontal assault. It is only stratagem that can quickly knock them down. To be a blonde, pink, soft and delicate, is to be a stratagem. It is to be a ruse, a feint, an ambush. It is to fight under the Red Cross flag. A man sees nothing alert and designing in those pale, crystalline eyes. He sees only something helpless, childish, weak, something that calls to his compassion, something that appeals powerfully to his conceit and his own strength and so he is taken before he knows that there is a war. He lifts his portcullis in Christian charity, and the enemy is in his citadel. The brunette can make no such stealthy and sure attack. No matter how subtle her art, she can never hope to quite conceal her intent. Her eyes give her away. They flash and glitter. They have depths. They draw the male gaze into mysterious and sinister recesses, and so the male behind the gaze flies to arms. He may be taken in the end, indeed he usually is, but he is not taken by surprise. He is not taken without a fight. A brunette has to battle for every inch of her advance. She is confronted by an endless succession of dead man's hills, each equipped with telescopes, semaphores, alarm gongs, wireless. 
The male sees her clearly through her densest smoke clouds, but the blonde captures him under a flag of truce. He regards her tenderly, kindly, almost pityingly, until the moment the jives are upon his wrists. It is all an optical matter, a question of color. The pastel shades deceive him, the louder hues send him to his artillery. God help, I say, the red-haired girl. She goes into action with morning pennants flying. The dullest, blindest man can see her a mile away. He can catch the alarming flash of her hair long before he can see the whites or even the terrible red-browns of her eyes. She has a long field to cross, heavily under defensive fire, before she can get into rifle range. Her quarry has a chance to throw up redoubts, to dig himself in, to call for reinforcements, to elude her by ignominious flight. She must win, if she is to win at all, by an unparalleled combination of craft and revolution. She must be swift, daring, merciless. Even the brunette of black and penetrating eye has great advantages over her. No wonder she never lets go once her arms are around her antagonist's neck. No wonder she is, of all women, the hardest to shake off. All nature works in circles. Causes become effects, effects develop into causes. The red-haired girl's dire need of courage and cunning has augmented her store of those qualities by the law of natural selection. She is, by long odds, the most intelligent and bemusing of women. She shows cunning, foresight, technique, variety. She always fails a dozen times before she succeeds, but she brings to the final business the abominable expertness of a Ludendorff. She has learnt painfully by the process of trial and error. Red-haired girls are intellectual stimulants. They know all the tricks. They are so clever that they have even cast a false glimmer of beauty about their worst defect, their harsh and gaudy hair. They give it euphemistic and deceitful names, Auburn, Bronze, Titian. They overcome by their hellish arts that deep-seated dread of red which is inborn in all of God's creatures. They charm men with what would even alarm bulls. And the blondes, by following the law of least resistance, have gone in the other direction. The great majority of them. I speak, of course, of natural blondes, not of the immoral wenches who work their atrocities under cover of a synthetic blondness are quite as shallow and stupid as they look. One seldom hears a blonde say anything worth hearing. The most they commonly achieve is a specious, baby-like prattling in infantile artlessness. But let us not blame them for nature's work. Why, after all, be intelligent? It is, at best, no more than a capacity for unhappiness. The blonde not only doesn't miss it, she is even better off without it. What imaginable intelligence could compensate her for the flat blueness of her eyes, the xanthus pallor of her hair, the doll-like pink of her cheeks? 
What conceivable cunning could do such execution as her stupendous appeal to masculine vanity, sentimentality, egoism? If I were a woman, I should want to be a blonde. My blondness might be hideous, but it would get me a husband, and it would make him cherish me and love me. 29. Alcohol Envy, as I have said, is at the heart of the messianic delusion, the mania to convert the happy sinner into a good man, and so make him miserable. And at the heart of that envy is fear, the fear to sin, to take a chance, to monkey with the buzzsaw. This ineradicable fear is the outstanding mark of the fifth-rate man, at all times and everywhere. It dominates his politics, his theology, his whole thinking. He is a moral fellow because he is afraid to venture over the fence, and he hates the man who is not. The solemn proof so laboriously deduced from the life insurance statistics that the man who uses alcohol even moderately dies slightly sooner than the teetotaler, these proofs merely show that this man is one who leads an active and vigorous life and so faces hazards and uses himself up. In brief, one who lives at high tempo and with full joy. What Nietzsche used to call the Jagdsager, or Yes-sayer. He may in fact die slightly sooner than the teetotaler, but he lives infinitely longer. Moreover, his life, humanly speaking, is much more worthwhile to himself and to the race. He does the hard and dangerous work of the world, he takes the chances, he makes the experiments. He is the soldier, the artist, the innovator, the lover. All the great works of man have been done by men who thus live joyously, strenuously, and perhaps a bit dangerously. They have never been concerned about stretching life for two or three more years. They have been concerned about making life engrossing and stimulating and a high adventure while it lasts. Teetotalism is as impossible to such men as any other manifestation of cowardice, and if it were possible it would destroy their utility and significance just as certainly. A man who shrinks from a cocktail before dinner on the ground that it may flabbergast his hormones and so make him die at sixty-nine years, ten months, and five days, instead of at sixty-nine years, eleven months, and seven days? Such a man is as absurd a poltroon as the fellow who shrinks from kissing a woman on the ground that she may floor him with a chair leg. Each flees from a purely theoretical risk. Each is a useless encumberer of the earth, and the sooner dead the better. Each is a discredit to the human race, already discreditable enough, God knows. Teetotalism does not make for human happiness. It makes for the dull, idiotic happiness of the barnyard. The men who do things in the world, the men worthy of admiration and imitation, are men constitutionally incapable of any such pecksniffian stupidity. Their ideal is not a safe life, but a full life. They do not try to follow the canary bird in a cage, but the eagle in the air. And in particular, they do not flee from shadows and bugaboos.
the alcohol myth is such a bugaboo. The sort of man it scares is the sort of man whose chief mark is that he is always scared. No wonder the Rockefellers and their like are hot for saving the working man from John Barleycorn. Imagine the advantage to them of operating upon a flabby horde of timorous and joyless slaves, afraid of all fun and kicking up, horribly moral, eager only to live as long as possible. What mule-like fidelity and efficiency could be got out of such a rabble? But how many Lincolns would you get out of it? And how many Jacksons? And how many Grants? 30. Thoughts on the Voluptuous Why has no publisher ever thought of perfuming his novels? The final refinement of publishing already bedizened by every other art. Barabbas turned Petronius. For instance, consider the bucolic romances of the hyphenated Mrs. Porter. They have a subtle flavor of new-mown hay and daffodils already. Why not add the actual essence? Or at all events, some safe coltar substitute, and so help imagination to spread its wings. For Hall Cain, musk, and synthetic bergamot, for Mrs. Glynn and her neighbors on the tiger skin, the fragrant blood of the red, red rose. For the ruffianish pages of Jack London, the pungent, hospitable smell of a first-class barroom, that indescribable mingling of Maryland rye, cigar smoke, stale malt liquor, radishes, potato salad, and bloodwurst. For the Dartmoor sagas of the interminable Philippots, the warm, ammoniacal bouquet of cows, poultry, and yokels. For the dodo school, violets and Russian cigarettes. For the venerable howls, lavender and mignonette. For Zola, Rochefort, and wet leather. For Mrs. Humphrey Ward, lilies of the valley. For Marie Corelli, tuberoses and embalming fluid. For chambers, sachet and lip paint. For, but, I leave you to make your own choices. All I offer is the general idea. It has been tried in the theater. Well do I remember the first weeks of Floridora at the old casino, with a mannequin in the lobby squirting La Flor de Floridora upon all us Floridorans. I was put on trial for my life when I got home. End of part three.